Merry Christmas. And this morning we conclude our four-part series uh, looking at God drawing near in the book of Genesis. And Advent, uh, the word Advent simply means appearing or coming or the beginning of something. And we celebrate these last four weeks in this season and today the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God to be born among us and live among us and drawing near in the most ultimate of senses in putting on our skin and our flesh and living and dwelling among us. The most of unbelievable realities became true. God walked among us. But God's been drawing near to his people from the very beginning. God made Adam and Eve so that they would walk in the cool of the day with God himself. And after sin entered the world, God promised that he would send a redeemer. He would send a promised one who would crush the head of the serpent, the enemy, and he would redeem his people and bring his people back to himself. And that person, that man, is Jesus Christ. And so the story of the Bible is God redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And at different points, God draws near to assure his people of his promise, of the covenant that he's made. And we've been looking at the book of Genesis to see four different snapshots of when God drew near. And we saw that he drew near to Abraham through Abraham's doubts. It was the doubts that brought the promise of God to come in a fresh way to Abraham. We saw that God drew near to Sarah through her cynicism. Through her cynicism. So that her laughter of cynicism turns into a laughter of joy. That the very thing that was a mark of sin became a trophy of grace in the hands of God. And last week, we saw that God drew near to Jacob through suffering. And so we've seen these different places, these unexpected places where God actually draws near to his people. And this morning, we're going to look at a place that's one of, probably one of my favorite snapshots, stories in the entire Bible. And it's the story of Leah. It's the story of Leah. And we'll see that God will draw near to Leah through her disillusionment. That he draws near to her through and because of her disillusionment. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to read to us verses 15 to 35. Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 to 20, 35, excuse me. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your daughter Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. 
And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and I will also give the other in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this Advent season. We're grateful to celebrate that God became weak, weak people needing a Savior to become weak for them, and you've done that for us. So help us this morning, Lord, as we look to this text and we see the disillusionment that Leah experienced and how you ultimately touched her with your grace. So help us to see it for ourselves, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by talking about the context that we find ourselves in here. I'm going to deliver this sermon a little differently than normal. I'm going to sort of set the context, and then we're going to have six or seven applications or so. So the context here is that this is Jacob's journey to Laban's homestead. As we referenced, as we've been talking about the story of Jacob, he's tricked his brother for the birthright in the previous chapter, and now he's on the run from his brother who's vowed to kill him, and he's on his way to Laban's house, his uncle's house. And what happens in the beginning part of Genesis chapter 29 is it says that he sees Leah for the first time. And what's interesting is this story This similar kind of story has happened a few chapters earlier. When Abraham's servant was sent in Genesis chapter 24, it says that that they were both sent out to go find a wife for themselves. And as Abraham's servant is going, he's praying, he's seeking the Lord the whole time, he's just hoping that he can find a wife for his master Abraham. But in this story, as we see that Jacob is going out, there's no praying. There's no asking God for wisdom. There's no asking God for provision. He simply goes. But they both, both the servant and both Jacob at different points in their lives, come to this place where they lay their eyes upon a beautiful woman. And the one, the servant, is praising God. He's thanking God. Jacob doesn't say anything to God about it. He just says, wowzers. Here's the one I've been looking for. So it's an ongoing theme 
in Jacob's life. That God is seeking after Jacob when Jacob is not seeking after him even. Even before this, we have the scene of the latter dream where God comes down to Jacob and meets him in a dark, dark moment in his life. So the grace of God, the coming of God, has been touching Jacob so far. But as we'll see, he's slow to respond. He's slow to get on board. He's slow to give himself to this great God. Jacob, though, his life is constantly experiencing the consequences of his own sin. And a lot of the suffering, a lot of the suffering that Jacob experiences, he's brought on himself. A lot of the suffering that Jacob experiences, he's brought upon himself. And there's different kinds of suffering, right? There's suffering that we bring on ourselves from bad decisions, from poor things that we've done. And sometimes suffering just comes on us and it's completely undeserved. It's unexpected. But Jacob here pretty much deserves everything that he gets. But even in this, even in this, God is with him. The God of grace, the mercy of God, doesn't depart him. Even in this, for Jacob, his worst things, his failures, his setbacks, his shortcomings will turn out for good. For Jacob, even though he doesn't understand the grace of God, in many ways he's, he's, he's repudiated the grace of God in his life, his best things are still yet to come. And that is good news for us. Because the same is true in our lives as well. That even in our worst decisions, God will even use them for our good. When Jacob looks back as an old man and he looks upon the landscape of his life, he'll have no regrets. Because it was through his foolish and his cold-hearted decisions, his deceiving, his manipulating, his posturing, It's through those things that God made him into the man that he will become. That even his worst things will turn out for his good. And that's the point. The point is that God's lavish grace in the midst of our foolish and cold-hearted decisions should draw us to him. It should make us... To want to pray should make us to want to worship. It should make us to want to obey God simply so that we can get more of him, to please him. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says this. He says, we do not wish either to be or to live among people who are clean or honest or kind as matters of duty. We want to associate with people who like being kind and clean and honest. The mere suspicion that what seemed like an act of spontaneous friendliness or generosity, but it was actually done as a duty, it subtly poisons it. The whole purpose of the gospel is to deliver us from this kind of morality. Therefore, the cold, gloomy heart doing as duty what happier and richer souls do without even thinking of it. That's what the gospel of grace does. The gospel of grace, as it comes into a life and it comes into a heart, it changes it. And it makes it to want to be the kind of heart 
that does just happily seek the good of others. Not seeking the good of others for some kind of duty-bound reason or seeking the good of others for what it might possibly do for us, but a touch of grace, a touch of sheer undeserved grace has a profound effect on the human heart, making it to be the kind of heart that longs to see the good in others. The heart that embraces the gospel of grace, does these things because of God's grace in their life. And it's grace that changes Jacob. Sheer, undeserved grace is the only thing that changes any human being. Sheer, undeserved grace is the only thing that changes any human being. My wife and I were watching a movie this weekend, uh, The Family Man, Nicolas Cage, and the story is somewhat like a um, Christmas Carol type story. And what Nicolas Cage gets is he's this, he's this very successful Wall Street trader. And there was a moment in his life when he was about 20 years old when there was a crossroads. He could either go to this internship in London and become the great uh, investment banker that he one day becomes, a man that can buy anything that he wants, or he can stay. He can stay with the woman that he loves and live a different life. And so he chooses to go to London and live this life of a Wall Street trader, a man that can buy anything he wants. But like the Christmas Carol, he has a snapshot where he can see what his life would have been like. And it's, it's funny, of course, because he ends up being a tire salesman working for his father-in-law. And he's got a mortgage and he lives in this suburban house with these kids that are keeping him up at night. And he has this moment where he goes back to, to Manhattan and he somehow is able to get his job And he has this moment when his wife says to him, (laughs) he gets me, sorry. When he says, I figured it out. We can move to Manhattan. We can have our cake and eat it too. I can have you. I can have the kids. And we can have this lavish lifestyle. And she, she, of course, is the voice of reason. And why would we do that? How can you raise kids in Manhattan? You're going to be gone all the time. And she looks at him and she says, but if that's what you need, if that's what you want, I'll do it. I'll go with you, because I choose us. And that act of grace in Jack Campbell's life changes him. An act of grace from a woman who he's treated poorly, who he's not honored as he should, who he's not loved as he should, says, I'll do it if you need it. And it changes him. Because it's an act of grace. Only an act of sheer, undeserved grace will change the human heart. So that's the context. That's Jacob. I know this is supposed to be a sermon about Leah, but it's massively important for us to understand the gospel of grace continuing to pursue Jacob like the hound of heaven, even when he doesn't receive it, even when he doesn't embrace it, as he should. It says, of course, moving on in our text here, that when he sees Rachel, he's struck by her beauty. The text actually is pretty... Um, explicit, it says that he weeps aloud. (laughs) What a weirdo. (laughs) The guy sees the beauty and he weeps aloud. He goes to work for his uncle. It says in verse 17 that Rachel is beautiful and he loves this woman. He wants to marry her, of course, but he can't pay the bride price. And so he agrees to this exorbitant bride price of working for seven years. And all commentators suggest that this is, this is not just the way it was back then. This is not just what everybody did. This is an over-the-top, 
exorbitant bride price, okay? This is, it, 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 it's, it's, it's an insane concept to work for a guy seven years so that you can marry his daughter, okay? I mean, well, never mind. <laughs> I was about to make a bunch of jokes about people trying to marry people's daughters, but for another day. <laughs> Why would he do it, though? Why would he do it? Well, maybe love. Love of what? Why would he do it? Well, one of the reasons is the myth of fulfillment. The myth of fulfillment, and this passage is riddled with the myth of fulfillment. It happens here to him. Later we'll see that it's happening to Leah. The passage is riddled with the myth of fulfillment. If a beautiful woman will love me, then I will have worth. And we do this. We stake our claim, our hope, our happiness, our future on other things. Searching for the thing that will ultimately make us happy. We, as a modern society, talk about marriage this way. We have fairy tale discussions about marriage. We talk about the one, the Prince Charming, the only one who will truly make us happy. One that will complete us. But at the end of the day, it's self-seeking and self-serving. There's an underlying myth. There's an underlying mentality to this way of thinking that says, that I need to marry this person so that I can be truly happy. And therefore, it's up to this person to make me truly happy. And we do this with everything. We do it with marriage. That's, the, that's the, obviously the most obvious application from this text this morning. But we do it with all sorts of things. We do it with careers. We do it with this elusive, when I finally have X, then I'll be happy. We do it with the next home that we want to buy, the next car we want to buy. Look, tomorrow, or two days from now, is Christmas. And there's this myth of fulfillment that's residing in each of our hearts. That something's going to come. Something's going to satisfy us. And sometimes the problem is that these things do deliver short-term results. They deliver short-term results. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing. He's setting his hope. He's setting his happiness. He's setting his joy on something that is in the elusive future. Something that will one day come. Retirement. Financial freedom. Your kids all being married. Your kids being successful. Something out there. We set our hope. We set our satisfaction on the elusive future. There's a myth of fulfillment in those things. We'll talk more about that as we continue on. So let's look at this. Verse 21, actually wait on verse 21. Let's talk about verse 17 first as we better understand the story and then we'll get to application here in just a couple minutes. Verse 17 says that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, translators struggle with how to translate that. That's, they say uh, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, but commentators Make it really easy for us. It doesn't say that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel could see really good. <laughs> Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was like a falcon, right? No, it says that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. The translators are just being gentle. They're just being gentle. It says Leah was ugly, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That's simply what it says. It's obvious in the context. So, so Jacob, of course, 
loves Rachel because she's the beautiful one. And here we have Leah. Now, just being you know, pretty strong in language here, but know that Leah is, um, is very near and dear to me in understanding this story. So I say it strongly, but I don't mean it to be uh, unkind or anything of that nature. But Jacob longs to be with Rachel. And what's remarkable and striking is that if you look at verses 18 and 19, he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should try to give her to any other man. Stay with me. He never says yes. <laughs> he simply avoids the, 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 the deal here. So Jacob is saying, I'll work for you seven years and you give me Rachel. And, Jake, and Laban basically says, that's a good idea. You should work for me seven years. Never agreeing to it, necessarily. So, of course, the end of the seven years comes. The wedding day comes. And when there's this drunken scene or something, I don't know how this possibly happens. Maybe there's, there's no light to that day. I don't know how this happens. But somehow, Laban is able to get Leah to go into the tent. Jacob lays with Leah, and now he's bound to her as her husband. So let's talk about application here in this story. Number one, um, sin has devastating and reoccurring effects. If we just think of, 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 of sin as an act that we commit in an isolated moment, it happens, it's done, it's over, then we don't understand the nature of our actions and sin. Look at the recurring and devastating and ongoing effects of sin in these people's lives. You could go all the way back to Isaac. Isaac has favored his son Esau. Jacob is well aware of the fact that his, that his father loves his older brother more than he loves him. And Jacob is now doing the very same thing to these two women that his father has done to him. This kind, of, this kind of favoritism has just trickled down from the father to the son. And we'll see in a moment that Jacob himself actually goes through a, an, an utter hell of, of, of sorts when he hears that his son Joseph is dead. Because it's going to be Leah's children that are going to be jealous of Rachel's children and sell Joseph into slavery and tell Jacob that their father's dead. So there's this ongoing cycle of favoritism, of posturing, of, of, of manipulating, of, 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 and it's just this, it's, it's a sin of the grandfather going to the, going to the father, going to the sons, and it has these devastating, reoccurring effects through this whole family. So we can't just look at sin and, and consider it to be some kind of isolated moment, isolated situation, because it's not. It has ongoing, devastating, reoccurring effects throughout this entire family for generations. For generations. That's number one. Second application is that idols always overpromise and under deliver. 
Look, we were saying it a moment ago. That no matter what our hopes are in, there's the myth of fulfillment. Because there's something really profound that happens in this story. And we understand the nature of the myth of fulfillment. Let's start by talking about it like this. C.S. Lewis, he talks about it in Surprised by Joy. He says, most people, if they really look into their own hearts, would know that they want and they want something intensely that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. And I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or failures of vacations and so on, but I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There is always something that we've grasped at. There's always something in the first moment of longing, but it fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It's turned out to be a great job and career, but it still has evaded us. Look, when Jacob wakes up in the morning, what does the text say? When Jacob wakes up in the morning, in verse 25, it says, And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Listen to Kidner, or commentator on the book of Genesis. He says, The words, behold, it was Leah, are the very embodiment of the anticlimax. And this moment is a miniature of man's disillusionment that he experiences from Eden onwards. That's profound. He says, no matter what your hopes are in, no matter what they're in in this life and in this world, in the morning, they will always be Leah. In the morning, they will not be Rachel. They will not deliver to the degree that you hoped and expected them to. As Lewis says, he's not talking about unsuccessful marriages. He's not talking about unsuccessful vacations. He's not talking about unsuccessful careers. He's talking about the very best of them. The very best of spouses, the very best of careers, the very best of vacations, whatever it is, in the morning, it is always Leah. In the morning, it's not Rachel. In the morning, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. It evades, it slips away. So how do we respond when the morning comes? How do we respond when the morning comes? Because the morning always comes. The next day always comes. The evading of the fulfillment always comes. Let me give us a few options of how we could respond. We could get a better spouse. <laughs> we could try again. We could say, this one ultimately didn't satisfy. We can get a better job. We get a better career. We can get a better house. We could try to make more money. Well, that won't work. Number two, we can get angry and bitter at ourselves. We're not doing enough, not trying hard enough. Not being content. Number three, we can get bitter and angry at other people. They're not delivering, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing for me. We can get bitter and angry at our spouses for not delivering on the kind of life that we expected to have. 
Or four, we can get bitter and angry at God. We can get bitter and angry at God. We can say, I have put in the effort. I've put in the work. I've done everything I was supposed to do. Why is the satisfaction not here? Why in the morning is it always Leah to me? Uh, But of course, there is a solution. There is a solution. And it's an early Christmas present for you. Because the answer, of course, the answer, of course, is that there are no true Rachels in this life. The answer, of course, is that there is nothing in this world that can truly satisfy your heart to the degree that it longs for. There are no Rachels in this world and in this life. So then what's the answer? Again, C.S. Lewis, weight of glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. It's quite simple. If there's something in our hearts that are longing for and nothing on this side, nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy, it must therefore mean that our hearts were made for something more. Our hearts were made for another world. Our hearts were made to live and dwell and be in the presence of God. And he has to draw near in the midst of our disillusionment. So when the morning comes, when behold it is Leah, it is our heart telling us that there are no true Rachels in this world. It is our heart telling us that only the love, the grace, the mercy, the satisfaction of God in the gospel will ultimately satisfy your heart. And that, my friends comes to you by sheer, undeserved grace. That's the second application. The third. uh, I'll be brief here because we've talked about this several times in the past, so I'll be be brief. Uh, What Leah is plagued by here is traditional family values. What Leah is plagued by here is finding her hope and her significance in traditional family values, right? A woman's worth, particularly in the ancient world, was her ability to bear children. She was able to give children to the family, able to give children to her husband, and so on and so forth. And she has a life that's been absolutely messed up by the men in her life. She's been abused. She's been mistreated. She's been harmed by her father, and now she's been mistreated, abused, and harmed by her husband. I mean, think about the kind of mistreatment that this woman must have gone through. Her, I mean, what, what must that awful conversation have been like when her father is telling her to go lay with Jacob, go sneak into his tent, not your sister Rachel, you. I know he doesn't love you, but you, need, you go, get in there. I asked, what What shame. What mistreatment, what abuse. And then knowing 
that your husband now loves your sister more than he loves you. I mean, it's in the text. It's obvious. The only reason that he's sleeping with you is because she's barren. The only reason he's sleeping with you is because you'll actually give him kids. It's awful. But Leah faces the same problem that Jacob did. Because she's trying to find her worth, her value, her acceptance in her husband's love. That's why she continues to have children for him. She continues to have children for him in the hopes that he'll actually love her and care for her. I mean, it's right in the text. I'm not making this up. Look at it. Verse starting at verse 32. Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben and said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. You know what the word Reuben means? It means see. She names her son see. Maybe now my husband will see me. Maybe now he'll love me because I've given him a son. No. Verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also and called his name Simeon. Simeon means hear. God's heard me. Maybe my husband will hear me now. No. And she conceived again and bore a son. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've given him three sons. Therefore, his name shall be called Levi. And Levi, of course, means attach. Maybe my husband will cleave to me now because I've given him three sons. Maybe he'll love me. Maybe he'll see me. Maybe he'll be attached to me. Maybe he'll cleave to me. Maybe he will embrace me. But of course he doesn't. She experiences the same kind of disillusionment that Jacob himself experienced. She experienced the myth of fulfillment. The promised, mispromised myth of fulfillment. That if I am a good wife, I do everything that I'm supposed to, then my husband will love me, then I'll experience the joy, satisfaction that my heart truly, actually longs for. And it's simply not true. She experiences the abuse, the mistreatment of the men in her life and seeks to solve the problem by looking to traditional, <laughs> traditional family values, putting her stock, putting her hope in another one. You know, maybe if she would have had a better husband, the myth of disillusionment, the myth of fulfillment would have lasted a little longer. But she doesn't. She has a bad husband. And so the idols of her heart, the idols of her life, come much more closely to the front earlier in her life. In a sense, it's a grace to her. This poor excuse of a husband draws her quickly to see the idolatry of her own heart. So that's third application. 
What's the fourth application? Well, it's that God works through weak people. God works through weak people. We said earlier that Jacob has had touches of grace throughout his life, but it hasn't seemed to ultimately change him up to this point. But it was through Laban, it was through Laban where Jacob ultimately meets his match. Even the way that it's worded, you can see the sarcasm of Jacob when he says things like, it's not done this way in our country, where the younger will serve the older, knowing full well that he's stolen his older brother's birthright. And it says that you deceived me. That's Jacob's name. So in Laban, Jacob has met his match. But what's remarkable, what's remarkable that when he finally, when he, when he realizes that he's been duped by Laban, he doesn't put up a fight. He doesn't put up a fight. When he says, nope, you have to work for me another seven years, he doesn't put up a fight because what Jacob sees in Laban is he sees himself. He sees in this weak man, he sees himself and he doesn't actually put up a fight because oftentimes the person that we despise the most usually has the trait that we hate most in ourselves. He's met his match. But it's, we can see glimmers of hope in Jacob's life because Jacob is beginning to change. Jacob, who's being relentlessly pursued by God, is beginning to change, and we see it because he doesn't put up a fight when he sees himself in Laban because God works through weak people. Well, let's begin to move to a close here. Looking back at Leah, we can see that something changes in verse 35. Now, by the way, we should say that um, if this is the kind of text, you read this kind of text and you hear this kind of text, you say, this is exactly why I don't believe and like the Bible, because of stories like this. I can't believe this kind of stuff is in the Bible. I can't believe that the Bible endorses polygamy. Well, let me just say this. If there's, if there's ever a story in the Bible that would speak against polygamy, this would be it. If you read this story and you think that the Bible's endorsing this, I don't think you're actually reading this story. Thanks, John. If you're reading this story, the Bible is saying these are the, this, is, this is the problem with polygamy. This is the problem with, with these kinds of relationships. This is the problem with treating women like they're only good for bearing children. This is the problem with thinking this way. This is the problem with, with, with people being uh, mistreated and abused and so on and so forth. Because the Bible, if you're looking to the Bible to be a story of role models, you're not going to find it. If you're looking for a story of Ronalds, it's not in the Bible. The Bible gives you stories of men and women who continue to struggle. The Bible gives you stories of people that continue to struggle, but the grace of God continues to pursue them. When they don't want it, when they don't like it, when they don't even understand it, the gospel of grace is continuing to pursue this man Jacob. Because the Bible is not a story of men and women who are role models. It's not a book of virtues. 
The Bible is not a book of virtues. The Bible is a story of God redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is a story of God's unrelenting, pursuing, lavish grace that continues to chase after people, that continues to change people, that continues to grip people, even in the midst of their struggles, even in the midst of their weaknesses, even in the midst of their failures. Because what the people need, what we need, is a God who's willing to become weak, a God who's willing to draw near, come close, and live among us, put on our skin and become weak. And that's what happens at the, at, at, at the manger scene in Christmas. That's what we celebrate, that we are a weak people who need a God who can be weak and come to us. And that's what we have at Christmas. And the only thing that you and I need to do is to lay down our deadly doing, is to lay down our posturing, our manipulating, our trying to grasp and get and simply receive the gospel of grace by grace, by faith alone. Because that's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is not about how you climb a ladder to get to God. The Bible is all about the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel. It's not a self-improvement plan. It's not an add-on. It's not a plus one. The Bible is a story of God coming down to us. The ladder is not a ladder how we get to God. The ladder is God coming down to us. And something changes radically in verse 35. Something changes. Look, the whole time, the glimpses of grace are in Leah's life too. You realize the name that she's using in verse 31 to 35, she's saying Yahweh. She's using the covenant name of God. She knows the promises of God on some level. She's heard them from Jacob or she's heard them from someone. She knows the promise that was given to Abram that one is going to come from his line who will redeem the world. She knows the story and she has glimpses of it in her story. It's not like she's unaware of the covenant keeping God. She calls, she says to the Lord, because Yahweh has heard my affliction, because Yahweh has heard that I am hated. But the penny, the quarter, It's like it's in the vending machine, but it needs to continue to be punched on the front so it drops down. She knows it up here on some level, but it has to continue to sink down to her heart so it truly grips her and grabs her. And that happens. It happens for her in verse 35. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Yahweh. Therefore she called his name Judah, which means praise. And she ceased bearing When the gospel of grace gripped her heart in a fresh and new and profound way, she stopped looking to her husband for her joy and satisfaction. Instead, she looked to the Lord. She saw that the covenant-keeping God, the God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is her God as well. She sees that God is not at the top of the ladder, but he's the God who saves by grace. And Leah gets her life back when she stops looking to her husband. And she looks to God for what only God can give. Now let me read you something. This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a great way to understand passages like this. It's called The Girl No One Wanted. There were two sisters The youngest sister was very beautiful, and her name was Rachel, but the oldest sister wasn't beautiful at all. Rachel was the kind of girl who always gets invited to the parties and chosen for the team. Everyone loves her. And poor Leah, no one hardly noticed her. 
One day their cousin Jacob came to stay. He was one of Isaac's sons and he was on the run. The funny thing is Jacob, of all people, was the one who God gave the special promise, I will rescue the world through your family. So Jacob stayed a long time working for his uncle Laban. And one day Laban said, Jacob, I've decided to pay you for your work. What do you want? And a, a, a sudden thought struck him. How about one of your daughters? Jacob looked at Rachel. Then he looked at Leah. Which one would he choose? Of course he chose Rachel. I'll work seven years for free if I can marry Rachel. So Jacob worked seven years, and at last his wedding day arrived. But that night, Jacob played a nasty, Laban played a nasty trick on Jacob. Instead of sending Rachel to marry him, he sent Leah. And the next morning, Jacob woke up and screamed. His new wife lying beside him wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. He jumped out of bed. Laban, he cried, you scoundrel. But Laban said, work for me another seven years and you can marry Rachel. So he did it, worked another seven years. Now Jacob had two wives, but of his two wives, Jacob loved Rachel. No one loves me, Rachel, Leah said. I'm too ugly. But God didn't think she was ugly. And when he saw that Leah was not loved and that no one wanted her, God chose her to love her specifically and to give her a very special promise that one day God was going to rescue the world through Leah's family. Now, when Leah knew that God loved her in her heart, suddenly it didn't matter anymore whether her husband loved her best or if she was the prettiest. Someone did love her with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. So when a baby boy came, she called him Judah, which means this time I will praise the Lord. And that's what she did. And you'll never guess what God gave Leah. You see... When God looked at Leah, he saw a princess, and sure enough, that's exactly what she became, because one of her children one day would become the prince of heaven, God's own son. The prince would love God's people, and they would need to be beautiful for him to be loved. He would love them with his whole heart, and they would be beautiful because he loved them, just like Leah. You realize what, Re- what Leah got? Jesus will come from the line of Judah. Because many years later, in a similar kind of scene, a young virgin woman would bear a son, Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, who is from the line of Leah, who makes us beautiful like Rachel when deep down we have ugly hearts. And he loves us with the kind of unrelenting, never giving up, never ending love. And when that kind of undeserved, lavish grace meets us, it has profound effects in our lives. Because it's in the midst of our failures, when behold in the morning it is Leah, when we have pursued those things, that's when the grace of God is just at the front door knocking and waiting to come in. It's through our failures. It's through our disillusionments. It's through our seeking our joy and satisfaction in other things that becomes the very trophy of God's grace for us. Because it's in those things that he meets us. What a wonderful, merciful Savior we have. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your love towards us in Jesus. 
we pray that we would lay hold of this lavish, undeserved grace, that you would draw near to us in the midst of our disillusionments, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our seeking our identity and hope in our idols, Lord. You're so gracious to us. You're so kind that you would come to us. That it's not us climbing a ladder to get to you. It's not us pulling ourselves out of the pit. It's not us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And then you can meet us. But you meet us at the bottom. You meet us at the end of ourselves. You meet us, Lord, when we need you the most. We're grateful, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We celebrate the Lord's table now. Where we experience tangibly that undeserved lavish grace for us. So you can come up row by row. The table is open for all who have called upon Jesus Christ and have made their faith public through the waters of baptism. Uh, You can come up row by row, starting from the back, take the elements back to your seat, and Chris Taylor will lead us to partake of communion corporately.